Part three of Chapter four of the Exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When day broke, I saw a river upon my right and a small town upon my left, the blue smoke reeking up above the moor. I should have liked well to have entered it, because it would have interested me to see something of the customs of the English, which differ very much from those of other nations. Much as I should have wished, however, to have seen them eat their raw meat and sell their wives, it would have been dangerous until I had got rid of my uniform. My cap, my moustache, and my speech would all help to betray me. I continued to travel towards the north, therefore, looking about me continually, but never catching a glimpse of my pursuers. About midday I came to where, in a secluded valley, there stood a single small cottage without any other building in sight. It was a neat little house with a rustic porch and a small garden in front of it, with a swarm of cocks and hens. I lay down among the ferns and watched it, for it seemed to be exactly the kind of place where I might obtain what I wanted. My bread was finished and I was exceedingly hungry after my long journey. I determined, therefore, to make a short reconnaissance, and then to march up to this cottage, summon it to surrender, and help myself to all that I needed. It could at least provide me with a chicken and with an omelette. My mouth watered at the thought. As I lay there wondering who could live in this lonely place, a brisk little fellow came out through the porch, accompanied by another older man, who carried two large clubs in his hands. These he handed to his young companion, who swung them up and down and round and round with extraordinary swiftness. The other, standing beside him, appeared to watch him with great attention and occasionally to advise him. Finally he took a rope and began skipping like a girl, the other still gravely observing him. As you may think, I was utterly puzzled as to what these people could be, and could only surmise that the one was a doctor and the other a patient who had submitted himself to some singular method of treatment. Well, as I lay watching and wondering, the older man brought out a greatcoat and held it while the other put it on and buttoned it to his chin. The day was a warmish one, so that this proceeding amazed me even more than the other. At least, thought I, it is evident that his exercise is over. But far from this being so, the man began to run, in spite of his heavy coat, and, as it chanced, he came right over the moor in my direction. His companion had re-entered the house, so that this arrangement suited me admirably. I would take the small man's clothing and hurry on to some village where I could buy provisions. The chickens were certainly tempting, but still there were at least two men in the house, so perhaps it would be wiser for me, since I had no arms, to keep away from it. I lay quietly then among the ferns, Presently I heard the steps of the runner, and there he was quite close to me, with his huge coat and the perspiration running down his face. He seemed to be a very solid man, but small, so small that I feared that his clothes might be of little use to me. When I jumped out upon him, he stopped running, and looked at me in the greatest astonishment. "'Blow my dicky!' said he. "'Give it a name, Governor. Is it a circus or what?' That was how he talked though I cannot pretend to tell you what he meant by it. "'You will excuse me, sir,' said I, "'but I am under the necessity of asking you to give me your clothes.' "'Give you what?' he cried. "'Your clothes. 
"'Well, if this don't lick cockfighting,' said he, "'what am I to give you my clothes for?' "'Because I need them. "'And suppose I won't?' "'Be jeebers,' said I. "'I shall have no choice but to take them.' He stood with his hands in the pocket of his greatcoat and a most amused smile upon his square-jawed, clean-shaven face. "'You'll take them, will you?' said he. "'You're a very leery cove by the look of you, "'but I can tell you that you've got the wrong sow by the ear this time. "'I know who you are. "'You're a runaway Frenchy from the prison yonder, "'as anyone could tell with half an eye. "'But you don't know who I am, "'else you wouldn't try such a plant as that. "'Why, man, I'm the Bristol Bustler, nine-stone champion, "'and them's my training quarters down yonder.' He stared at me, as if this announcement of his would crush me to the earth, but I smiled at him in my turn, and looked him up and down with the twirl of my moustache. "'You may be a very brave man, sir,' said I, "'but when I tell you that you are opposed to Colonel Etienne Gerard of the Hussars of Conflans, you will see the necessity of giving up your clothes without further parley.' "'Look here, Monsieur, drop it,' he cried. "'This'll end by your getting pepper.' "'Your clothes, sir, this instant!' I shouted, advancing fiercely upon him. For answer, he threw off his heavy greatcoat and stood in a singular attitude, with one arm out and the other across his chest, looking at me with a curious smile. For myself, I knew nothing of the methods of fighting which these people have, but on horse or on foot, with arms or without them, I am always ready to take my own part. You understand that a soldier cannot always choose his own methods, and that it is time to howl when you are living among wolves. I rushed at him, therefore, with a warlike shout, and kicked him with both my feet. At the same moment my heels flew into the air, I saw as many flashes as at Austerlitz, and the back of my head came down with a crash upon a stone. After that I can remember nothing more. When I came to myself I was lying upon a truckle bed in a bare half-furnished room. My head was ringing like a bell, and when I put up my hand there was a lump like a walnut over one of my eyes. My nose was full of a pungent smell, and I soon found that a strip of paper soaked in vinegar was fastened across my brow. At the other end of the room this terrible little man was sitting with his knee bare, and his elderly companion was rubbing it with some liniment. The latter seemed to be in the worst of tempers, and he kept up a continual scolding, which the other listened to with a gloomy face. "'Never heard tell of such a thing in my life,' he was saying, "'in training for a month with all the weight of it on my shoulders, "'and then, when I get you as fit as a trout, "'and within two days of fighting the likeliest man on the list, "'you let yourself into a by-battle with a foreigner.' "'There, there, stow your gab,' said the other sulkily. "'You're a very good trainer, Jim, but you'd be better with less jaw.' "'I should think it was time to jaw,' the elderly man answered. "'If this knee don't get well before next Wednesday, "'they'll have it that you fought across, "'and a pretty job you will have next time you look for a backer.' "'Fought across?' growled the other. "'I've won nineteen battles, and no man ever so much as dared to say the word cross in my hearing.' How the deuce was I to get out of it when the cove wanted the very clothes off my back? Tut, man, you knew that the beak and the guards were within a mile of you. You could have set them on to him as well then as now. 
you'd have got your clothes back again all right well strike me said the bustler i don't often break my training but when it comes to giving up my clothes to a frenchie who couldn't hit a dint and a pat of butter why it's more than i can swaller pooh man what are the clothes worth do you know that lord rufton alone has five thousand pounds on you when you jump the ropes on wednesday you'll carry every penny of fifty thousand into the ring a pretty thing to turn up with a swollen knee and a story about a frenchman i never thought he'd a kicked said the bustler i suppose you expected he'd fight broughton's rules and strict p r why you silly they don't know what fighting is in france my friends said i sitting up on my bed i do not understand very much of what you say but when you speak like that it is foolishness we know so much about fighting in france that we have paid our little visit to nearly every capital in europe and very soon we are coming to london but we fight like soldiers you understand and not like gammon in the gutter you strike me on the head i kick you on the knee it is child's play but if you will give me a sword and take another one i will show you how we fight over the water they both stared at me in their solid english way well i'm glad you're not dead monsieur said the elder one at last there wasn't much sign of life in you when the bustler and me carried you down that head of yours ain't thick enough to stop the crook of the hardest hitter in bristol he's a game cove too and he came for me like a bantam said the other still rubbing his knee i got my old left right in and he went over as if he'd been poleaxed it wasn't my fault mounseer i told you you'd get pepper if you went on well it's something to say all your life that you've been handled by the finest lightweight in england said the older man looking at me with an expression of congratulation upon his face you've had him at his best too in the pink of condition and trained by jim hunter i'm used to hard knocks said i unbuttoning my tunic and showing my two musket wounds then i bared my ankle also and showed the place in my eye where the gorilla had stabbed me he can take his gruel said the bustler what a glutton he'd have made for the middleweights remarked the trainer with six months coaching he'd astonished the fancy it's a pity he's got to go back to prison i did not like that last remark at all i buttoned up my coat and rose from the bed i must ask you to let me continue my journey said i there's no help for it monsieur the trainer answered it's a hard thing to send such a man as you back to such a place but business is business and there's a twenty pound reward they were here this morning looking for you and i expect they'll be round again his words turned my heart to lead surely you would not betray me i cried i will send you twice twenty pounds on the day that i set foot upon france i swear it upon the honour of a french gentleman but i only got headshakes for a reply i pleaded i argued i spoke of the english hospitality and the fellowship of brave men but i might as well have been addressing the two great wooden clubs which stood balanced upon the floor in front of me there was no sign of sympathy upon their bull faces business is business monsieur the old trainer repeated besides how am i to put the bustler into the ring on wednesday 
if he's jugged by the beak for aiding and abetting a prisoner of war. I've got to look after the bustler, and I take no risks. This, then, was the end of all my struggles and strivings. I was to be led back again like a poor silly sheep who has broken through the hurdles. They little knew me who could fancy that I should submit to such a fate. I had heard enough to tell me where the weak point of these two men was, and I showed, as I have often showed before, that Etienne Gerard is never so terrible as when all hope seems to have deserted him. With a single spring I seized one of the clubs and swung it over the head of the bustler. Come what may, I cried, you shall be spoiled for Wednesday. The fellow growled out an oath and would have sprung at me, but the other flung his arms around him and pinned him to the chair. Not if I know it, bustler, he screamed. None of your games will I am by. Get away out of this, Frenchy. We only want to see your back. Run away, run away, or he'll get loose. It was good advice, I thought, and I ran to the door. But as I came out into the open air, my head swam round and I had to lean against the porch to save myself from falling. Consider all that I had been through. The anxiety of my escape, the long useless flight in the storm, the day spent amid wet ferns, with only bread for food, the second journey by night, and now the injuries which I had received in attempting to deprive the little man of his clothes. Was it wonderful that even I should reach the limits of my endurance? I stood there in my heavy coat and my poor battered shako, my chin upon my chest and my eyelids over my eyes. I had done my best and I could do no more. It was the sound of horses' hooves which made me at last raise my head, and there was the grey-moustached governor of Dartmoor Prison, not ten paces in front of me, with six mounted warders behind him. So, Colonel, said he, with a bitter smile, we have found you once more. When a brave man has done his utmost and has failed, he shows his breeding by the manner in which he accepts his defeat. For me, I took the letter which I had in my pocket, and stepping forward, I handed it with such grace of manner as I could summon to the governor. It has been my misfortune, sir, to detain one of your letters, said I. He looked at me in amazement, and beckoned to the warders to arrest me. Then he broke the seal of the letter. I saw a curious expression come over his face as he read it. This must be the letter which Sir Charles Meredith lost, said he. It was in the pocket of his coat. You have carried it for two days, since the night before last, and never looked at the contents. I showed him by my manner that he had committed an indiscretion in asking a question which one gentleman should not have put to another. To my surprise he burst out into a roar of laughter. Colonel, said he, wiping the tears from his eyes, you have really given both yourself and us a great deal of unnecessary trouble. Allow me to read the letter which you carried with you in your flight. And this was what I heard. On receipt of this you are directed to release Colonel Etienne Gerard of the Third Hussars, who has been exchanged against Colonel Mason of the Horse Artillery, now in Verdun. As he read it he laughed again, and the warders laughed, and the two men from the cottage laughed, and then, as I heard this universal merriment, and thought of all my hopes and fears and my struggles and dangers, what could a debonair soldier do 
but lean against the porch once more and laugh as heartily as any of them. And of them all, was it not I who had the best reason to laugh, since in front of me I could see my dear France, and my mother, and the emperor, and my horsemen, while behind lay the gloomy prison and the heavy hand of the English king? End of chapter 4